Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. I have been wanting to talk about Thomas Dorsey for a while, a little over a year, uh, because part of his story represents a scenario for an artist that I find ceaselessly intriguing, which is that he lived a sort of double life creatively. Uh, I first learned about him when I heard one of his songs being played by a live band last year. I was in New Orleans, and I asked the band leader after their set what that song was, and he was like, do you not know who Thomas Dorsey is? And then I felt stupid. Uh, but then I looked into his story, and he went right on my list. Um, and uh, I I really, really love his work, so I thought that would be a good time to talk about him. Ultimately, Thomas Dorsey made his mark by combining existing ideas in his work and creating something new. Uh, and that consequently changed religious music forever. And Tracy and I actually had a conversation before we recorded where she said, she asked, did it change religious music or Christian music? And I said, well, technically Christian music, but because even people who do not feel particularly religious or are not Christian respond to it and find it very spiritual, it gets to be a little bit trickier to say it's just Christian music or not. Uh, but we will talk about that. And the incredibly... Uh, uplifting genre of music that he essentially created. Thomas Andrew Dorsey was born in Villarica, Georgia on July 1st, 1899. His father, the Reverend Thomas Madison Dorsey, was a revivalist preacher and a schoolteacher, and his mother, Etta Plant Spencer Dorsey, was the church organist. The Dorsey family, Thomas had several siblings, moved around a great deal before settling in Atlanta in 1908. Etta and Thomas Sr. were both educated. T.M. Dorsey attended Atlanta Baptist College, which eventually became Morehouse. Etta was a property owner in Villarica starting in 1894. Before she married Thomas, she made that purchase with the money she came into after her first husband died. So they started out in really good standing, but the Dorsey family's fortunes dwindled. Before they moved to Atlanta, they had actually fallen into poverty. Etta's land had been sold off in pieces over the years to keep the family afloat, and then they entered into a sharecropping arrangement which depleted what little they had left. We have talked on the show about how sharecropping systems essentially would just keep people poor and in many cases make them poorer than when they began. When they moved to the city, both of Dorsey's parents had to leave their religious jobs behind for other work just so they could make ends meet. His mother started working by taking in laundry, and his father took work as a laborer. This was a really difficult time for nine-year-old Thomas. For one, his family had been well-respected back in Villarica, but they were nobodies in Atlanta. He wasn't really accepted by his peers at school, and he had to fall back a grade from the third grade and repeat second grade. This really made him the odd man out among all of his classmates who were younger than he was, and among the children his own age who were in a grade above his. In one recollection, he mentioned never getting invited to classmates' birthday parties and sometimes watching those festivities through the windows of the celebrants' homes. And because of that lack of connection with kids his own age, Thomas started going to vaudeville performances and hanging out at the theaters. This initially began because it was popular for kids his age to go to the kids' matinees there. Uh, these were theaters where sometimes there would be a movie, but also there would be live acts. But he started lingering long past the matinees intended for children so that he could see the musical acts intended for adults. And it was there 
in Atlanta's Black entertainment scene of the early 1900s that he finally found a sense of belonging. Watching performers such as Bessie Smith, who was also very young at this time, and Ma Rainey inspired him to pursue music as a career for himself. He had learned a bit of piano from his mother and learned to play the blues songs that were popular from some of the regular piano men and touring performers that he'd come into contact with at the theater. He started playing first at parties as kind of an unpaid fill-in, and then he started to play professionally, still just a kid. He did this at some of the saloons in what was back then the Black Red Light District on Decatur Street. That earned him the nickname Barrel House Tommy. And at this point, though, even though his mother uh, had been very, very musically inclined, he couldn't read music, and he knew that that was limiting him. He had basically been learning songs by rote without having to read music. So as a young teenager, he decided to seek out music lessons. He took those from a woman named Mrs. Graves. But he had never really liked structured schooling, so he gave up this enterprise after just a short while. And he started once again to look to professional jazz and blues pianists to get the education that he truly wanted. And in some cases, they weren't teaching him actively. He was just watching them and noting how they performed and what notes they were playing. But he quickly saw the problem in all of this. Professional pianists needed to be able to sight-read to get hired to accompany acts that were coming through town. And Dorsey's solution was that he didn't want to go back to, again, formal schooling, so he sent away for an assortment of books on music, and he taught himself. He continued, though, to play theaters and house parties, but parties in particular were often broken up by the police, so he would not get paid for those. Uh, As someone who studied piano with a piano teacher and had a piano teacher to teach me how to, to play and read music, um, the idea of teaching myself to do it like, yeah, it'd be difficult for me. Uh, Dorsey eventually became famous for gospel music, but for a wide stretch of his early musical career, he worked in the very non-religious genre of hokum music. That's a blues style that's comedic in nature, and usually it's very sexually suggestive. Dorsey wasn't usually writing the body lyrics to these songs, though. He was arranging and composing the music and playing the piano for recordings and occasionally singing. And as we mentioned a moment ago, he was still very young while doing this. He started his fill-in jobs when he was 11 or 12. Before he was a teenager, he left school to start pursuing a career as a musician full-time. He would work in the hokum genre until the late 1920s. But as Dorsey matured, his music did as well. In 1916, at the age of 17, he moved from Atlanta to Chicago, Illinois. He migrated north like many other Black Southerners in the hopes that he could build a better life for himself he would have more opportunities, and in the hopes that he would just have to deal with less racism. This decision was informed in part by the newspaper, The Chicago Defender. This was a Black periodical that encouraged migration north for better opportunities. This has come up in other shows before as part of the Great Migration. Uh, An incident in which he was assaulted by a white store owner for standing outside the shop was often something that Dorsey cited as the moment he decided he was just done with Atlanta. He had initially been planning to continue on to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where his father had some family, but he wound up staying in Chicago. He did, however, return to Atlanta in the winters, the first two years that he lived there, because he could not handle the cold. (laughs) Chicago winters do not mess around. They are brutal. Uh, As someone who lives in Atlanta and has a best friend in Chicago, I completely understand this arrangement. Uh, You may notice that we are, are edging up into the First World War going on. 
And Dorsey registered, but he was not drafted. And the thing that kept him from being called up was the 1918 flu pandemic. Thomas got sick in the first wave, and he did eventually recover. He returned to Atlanta again that winter, but he did not go back to Chicago in the spring. He waited until the violence of the Red Summer in 1919 had subsided. Dorsey kept working during this time and claimed throughout his life that he had walked into a club one night and asked the woman playing the piano if she wouldn't like a break. According to the story, she said yes, she would like a break. He took over, and by the end of his set, he was established on the Chicago scene. One of his most sought-after skills was his ability to play the piano quietly. That meant that he could play at illegal after-hours parties and not attract unwanted police attention. That was particularly valuable during Prohibition. Thomas found the Chicago music scene to be really competitive. There were simply a lot of piano players and other musicians with a lot more education and technique than Dorsey. And he realized that while he initially seemed really popular and he felt like he was successful, he kind of started to notice that he was only popular in the lowest socioeconomic rung of Black society there. So the parties he was getting booked at were kind of like the parties that poor people were throwing. And he wanted bigger, more lucrative bookings. So he decided once again, to give formal training a go, and this time he enrolled at the Chicago School of Composition and Arranging. Becoming more skilled in composition and arrangement ended up being vital to Dorsey's long-term career. Dorsey started copywriting his music in 1920, but he was an outlier on the blues scene in that regard. He spoke later in his life about how the bluesmen of the time were really casual and cavalier about their original work, saying, quote, well, all the blues sounded alike for a while anyway, so we never bothered about the other fellow. If he got something of yours out, that's okay. I just let him take me out to dinner or something like that. And if he thought I infringed on him, there was no money transaction, no. In a moment, uh, we're going to talk about an unfortunate detour that caused success to elude Thomas in the early 1920s. But first, we are going to take a quick sponsor break. The time that Dorsey spent in school and a surge in popularity for blues music really helped improve his standing on the Chicago music scene. But as his reputation grew and his career seemed poised to really take off, Thomas had what is usually described as a nervous breakdown at the age of 21. He had been working day jobs and then playing at night, and the nonstop schedule and not taking care of himself had caused him to drop a lot of weight. His mother went to Chicago to get him, and when she saw him, she found him gaunt and exhausted. I think uh, I read one, one account that said he weighed less than 130 pounds, and he was a grown man at this point, so that's quite lean. Uh, he went home to Atlanta with Etta to recover, and during his time there, though, she was very vocal about her disdain for the type of music that he had been playing for a living, and she really, really urged him to turn to religious music. He was still just a young man in his early 20s, and Dorsey did not take his mother's advice. Once he was feeling better, he went back to Chicago, but once he was there, he had a profound spiritual experience. Thomas believed in God, but he didn't want to belong to any one church, and his worship was a little haphazard. But while he was attending the National Baptist Convention in Chicago in 1921 with his uncle, he heard W.M. Nix sing, I do, don't you? And as Dorsey would later say, Quote, my inner being was thrilled. My soul was a deluge of divine rapture. My emotions were aroused. My heart was inspired to become a great singer and worker in the kingdom of the Lord. 
1922, Dorsey copyrighted his first sacred song, If I Don't Get There, and more soon followed. He also became the music director at the New Hope Baptist Church on the south side of Chicago. And this was a really good fit because the New Hope congregation was open to some of the experimentation that Dorsey wanted to try out musically. That was something that a lot of churches probably would not have accepted. As he put it, quote, I had the prerogative to take a church song and put more into it. The New Hope job only lasted a few months before Dorsey's interest waned. He took a job with a band called the Whispering Syncopators at $40 a week, and the band became really popular at clubs around Chicago. But after a few months of that, he moved on to the booming blues recording business. Dorsey was able to assess the music industry and its audience and then write songs that had mass appeal. Yeah, uh, some music historians will say these are clearly not his best works because he was like, what will make money? What will sell the most records? Uh, In 1924, Thomas started touring with famed blues singer Ma Rainey, who he had watched perform when he was a kid. And he performed under the name Georgia Tom uh, with her Wildcats jazz band. That's a name he also used as a recording artist. And Dorsey was putting away money that he made on tour, and he made a little nest egg for himself with the intention that his next step in life was to start a family. While Dorsey's star was on the rise, his uncle Joshua, who also lived in Chicago, had taken on two new household members. They were Frankie Harper, a nurse that Joshua had hired to work in his drugstore, and Frankie's sister Nettie. When Thomas and Nettie met, they started a courtship immediately. In spring of 1925, Thomas proposed, but Nettie did not give him an answer. He also wrote to Nettie's mother and asked for her blessing and did not get a reply. But after several months of making him wait, uh, Thomas would would describe later on that there was another man in the mix uh, also courting Nettie, and he wondered what was going on there and who would win her affections. Uh, But Nettie did accept Thomas's proposal of marriage. They got married on August 1st of 1925, and they left Chicago together on August 2nd, not on a honeymoon, but on tour with Ma Rainey. Ma Rainey had made Nettie her wardrobe mistress, even though she had no experience in that career, so that the newlyweds could travel together. Again, it seemed like his life was in a good place, and his career was as well, but in 1926, Dorsey had a second nervous breakdown, and this one was worse than the first had been. It had started while he was touring. He noticed one night on stage that his playing had what he called an unsteadiness, That unsteadiness persisted and got worse until he wasn't able to play at all. So Dorsey had no income, and Nettie took a job in a laundry to keep them afloat. This went on for more than two years. He had sought the advice of all manner of doctors. They could not find anything wrong with him. He rested, but no improvement came. And Dorsey described feeling, quote, perplexed, sick, disturbed, and a bundle of confusion. The thought of losing his musicality forever was a particularly dark thing. He considered suicide during this time, and he told a biographer years later, quote, I was just standing out there, ready maybe to jump in Lake Michigan if it wasn't nothing else to do. I didn't feel exactly like that, but something had to happen. Ultimately, it was an encounter with a faith healer, Bishop H.H. Haley, that restored Dorsey's vibrance. Thomas had been convinced by his sister-in-law to attend church with her, Dorsey had always felt like he was a man of God, although his relationship with the church had become less consistent as he grew up. But that Sunday with his sister-in-law, he met H.H. Haley, who said to him, quote, Brother Dorsey, there's no reason for you to be looking so poorly and feeling so badly. The Lord has too much work for you to let you die. 
And according to Dorsey's account of what happened next, Haley pulled a live serpent out of Dorsey's throat. And having been freed of that, his suffering ended, and on the spot he pledged to do the Lord's work from that moment on. So this is when Thomas decided to heed his mother's advice, and he turned his regained talents to writing sacred music. In 1928, Dorsey published his first piece of gospel music, If You See My Savior. This marks a desire creatively that would define the musician's entire career, although he really struggled with his identity musically for a while. Dorsey had planned to work exclusively in religious music genres from the time of his healing. But the religious songs that he was writing were not well-received. Churches simply didn't want them. They were too modern. They used an eight-bar blues structure, and they had displaced syncopated notes. And some ministers even called his work devil music, even though the lyrics were very devotional and affirming. Uh, They were a departure in that they were not so much about pain and sorrow as they were about hope and this sort of affirmative uh, connection with religion. And Dorsey thought this would catch on, and he even tried sending free copies of some of his songs to churches in the hopes that they would like them and that they would buy more, but that did not work. And for a brief period, just needing to find work, Dorsey went back to playing non-religious blues. We're about to talk about a song that was just wildly successful for him, but which he was ambivalent about, and we will get to that after a sponsor break. In 1928, Dorsey collaborated with Chicago-based guitarist Hudson Whitaker, better known by his stage name of Tampa Red, on a hokum song filled with sexual double entendre called It's Tight Like That. Initially, when Whitaker approached Dorsey with the lyrics, which needed a melody, Dorsey told him he didn't, quote, do that kind of music anymore. But Whitaker convinced him, and Dorsey really needed the money. He very quickly that night wrote a tune, they recorded it the next day, and the record was a huge hit. They also recorded two other versions of it, and the money did indeed come in. Dorsey's first royalty check for It's Tight Like That, again in 1928, was $2,400.19. And Dorsey felt that this sort of income justified his move back to secular music because it meant that he could pamper Nettie in a way that showed his thanks for her sticking with him through his darkest times. But then Thomas lost a lot of money when the bank that he had been depositing his checks in went bust. He and Nettie both believed that this is the work of God to remind him that he had promised to devote his talents to sacred music. But the sudden financial loss put him in a position where he had to take paying jobs in secular music, as his gospel tunes were still struggling to find an audience. And as a consequence, Dorsey began living something of a double life. He was still working on his gospel songs, and he was struggling to get churches to accept them, and he was trying all kinds of ways to try to get a foot in that door. But he was also working as a road musician playing hokum songs. He said at one point, quote, I wasn't giving all my time to the church, see? I was kind of straddling the fence, making money on the outside, you know, in the band business, and then going to church Sunday morning, helping what I could do for them, but they wasn't able to pay nothing. I could make money out there. In 1932, Dorsey's life changed completely. He and Nettie were expecting their first child due in August. The schedule was tight. Thomas was supposed to be on the road very close to Nettie's due date. But her pregnancy had gone really smoothly, and they decided it would be okay if he traveled. Her sister, who was a nurse, was also going to be with her. 
Nettie and Thomas had arranged for the birth to be at a hospital, but the hospital had no beds when she arrived in labor, and she had asked to be taken home for the birth rather than being admitted elsewhere. There were complications during the birth, and Nettie died. Thomas had received a telegram before his concert started that night that the baby's arrival was imminent, and it did mention that Nettie was sick, but it did not really communicate the grave nature of the situation. So he did the concert, and he called immediately after they had wrapped the show, and that was when he was told that Nettie was dead. He and the band leader that he was on tour with immediately left, uh, and the band leader drove him all the way back home. He met his baby, a son named Thomas Andrew, who was a large, seemingly healthy infant. But Thomas Andrew Jr. died the night after his mother. In the depth of his grief, Thomas turned to music. He found a piano, and he wrote a song that he would later claim had come directly from God. It was called Take My Hand, Precious Lord. The lyrics were Dorsey's rewritten version of George Allen's hymn, Must Jesus Bear the Cross Alone?, In a way, this was really where he brought his two lives into one, combining the rhythms of the blues with the words of faith. Yeah, in some ways, he had been toying with this idea earlier in his career. Obviously, those early uh, gospel songs were not catching on. But this was like a point where you could not argue that it was not a combination of the two. And it was not accidental that Dorsey chose to blend blues with a religious message. He had noticed early in his career that the reactions that audience gave at blues performances were often very similar to the way people responded when they felt deeply moved in church. He described this similarity in a 1977 interview. Quote, I've seen women in the audience jump up so touched. Jump up like you shouting in church. I've seen that right in the theater. Whatever it is that touches them, they jump up and ring and shout just like we would in church. It gets low down. Now, what we call low down in blues doesn't mean that it's dirty or bad or something like that. It gets down into the individual to set him on fire, dig him up or dig her up way down there till they come out with an expression verbally. If they're in the church, they say amen. If they're in the blues, they say sing it now. And we should note that this was not a style that was instantly popular or viewed positively. Aside from uh, his earlier work, this was also not across the board something that people welcomed. There were some members of Black churches where this music first started appearing that felt that it represented a step back, and they feared that embracing something that felt like old culture and tradition, uh, that they were signaling to the white majority that they were not interested in fitting in or assimilating, and that in doing so, they were going to stunt the potential for upward mobility for the entire Black community. This concern and discussion was not new and it did not relate only to music. Debate about the balance between adopting white cultural norms or retaining a connection to their own Black culture rooted all the way back to enslavement had been happening for some time, especially in cities, and particularly as more Black people moved from rural areas to those cities. Uh, Yeah, I read uh, one note in a biography of him that the people from rural communities that had moved into more metropolitan areas kind of got looked at with suspicion, like, oh, they're going to ruin it now um, because they didn't know, quote, how to act right. Um, So this was a a big conflict that was going on. But Dorsey's gospel blues emerged as that debate was dividing a number of congregations. But the combination of blues music and the words of sacred text kind of became a musical expression of that conflict. And to some degree, it was a modern blend of those two positions, and it offered for a lot of people a sort of unification. 
Decades later, in 1975, John Lovell Jr., who wrote extensively about Black music history, said that the creation of gospel blues was, quote, an effort to give the spiritual a modernity in form, content, and beat. The first time Dorsey and his friend and fellow musician Theodore Fry performed Take My Hand, Precious Lord, which was at the Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church in Chicago just a few days after it was written, the congregation very obviously loved it. And initially, that response confused Thomas Dorsey. He wasn't sure if people were responding to the song itself or to the performances of the the artists, but it became apparent over time that he had created something new that truly moved people. And as we said, uh, this was not exactly an instant hit due to all of that conflict that we just mentioned. But over the next several years, Thomas Dorsey's new brand of sacred music gained a following and momentum as more and more churches started to welcome it. He and Fry performed it in a lot of different churches as kind of an introduction, and that's how most people heard it for the first time. Soon, Thomas Dorsey became the gospel choir director at Chicago's Pilgrim Baptist Church, which became the epicenter of gospel blues. He continued in that position into the 1970s. He also started traveling more and more to teach music to other choir directors. And after doing that for just a short while, Dorsey realized that there needed to be a governing body to manage the growing need for education in this genre. In 1933, the National Convention of Gospel Choirs was chartered. Once again, Dorsey was at the center. And this organization, which continues today, set up resources for churches that wish to form their own gospel choirs. The National Convention would send people out to churches and help them get their choirs up and running. Dorsey remained the national president of that organization for four decades. As his travels and administrative responsibilities added up, Dorsey stopped performing on recordings. His last session was in 1934. As his popularity as a songwriter continued to grow, Take My Hand, Precious Lord became a standard. It was sung and recorded over the years by a lot of luminaries in the music world, including Elvis Presley, Aretha Franklin, Mahalia Jackson, and Johnny Cash. Many of Dorsey's more than 400 songs have similarly been sung by popular musicians both in and out of religious contexts. Yeah, he also uh, started his own publishing company because music publishers did not want to publish gospel music written by Black composers. And he was like, okay, I'll put my schooling to work. In 1941, Dorsey also remarried, this time to a woman named Catherine Mosley, and they went on to have two children together. Dorsey's career was unique because he was able to see that his music was important to people during his lifetime. One of the last things that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said before he was assassinated in Memphis in 1968 was that he wanted Take My Hand, Precious Lord to be played that evening. It was one of the civil rights leaders' favorites. The song was performed at Dr. King's funeral. Thomas Dorsey died on January 23, 1993 in Chicago after a lifetime of giving music to people. He was 94 years old, and he had developed Alzheimer's disease in the last years of his life. In 2006, Pilgrim Baptist Church, where Dorsey worked with his choir, burned in an accidental fire that destroyed all but the exterior masonry. The church had already been declared a historic site back in 1973, and there was a massive effort to raise funds to rebuild the entire structure to what it had looked like in the 1920s and 30s. The focus of reclamation efforts have shifted somewhat. The site is now earmarked to become the National Museum of Gospel Music, and fundraising efforts to fulfill that mission continue. 
Dorsey's many songs, both secular and sacred, continue to be performed. Among other notable recent instances, Beyonce sang Take My Hand, Precious Lord at the 2015 Grammy Awards. You can hear that performance online. It's quite touching. Earlier this year, the documentary Say Amen, Somebody, which covers the work of pioneers in gospel music, was restored and re-released. It features interviews and performances and includes Thomas Dorsey speaking about writing Take My Hand, Precious Lord. It's currently available to stream as a purchase or a rental for Milestone Films. Writing about Mr. Dorsey, author and music producer Anthony Heilbutt summed up the musician's contributions perfectly when he wrote, quote, Few composers dominate their genre so dramatically as Thomas Andrew Dorsey, father of the gospel song. The lion's share of the most popular gospel compositions are his. That's Thomas Dorsey. I like him a whole bunch. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's really, really fun to go listen to interviews with. And yeah. I I really, really love uh, watching him speak because, you know, he's very open about his life being this sort of duality for a long time and that his start was not in sacred music um and you know why he loves the loved the blues his entire life and it it kind of um even though it was born out of obviously very great tragedy it's uh sort of wonderful that he finally found success when he stopped trying to keep those parts of his life siloed and let them be together um my listener mail is not entirely related, but it is a little bit related because the person who wrote it is a choir director, <laughs> which is why I picked it. Uh, it is from our listener, Libby, who writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, I've been looking for a reason to write you, and I think I finally have one. I started listening to your podcast almost four months ago, but early in February, I started to earn my PhD in Stuff You Missed in History class, and I vowed to listen to every podcast from the beginning, no matter what. I am a middle school choir teacher, so anytime I had a break or I stayed after school to grade papers, I listened to it a little bit. As an aside, thank you for being an educator. Uh, then in March, we left for the spring break that never ended, and my schedule opened up. Since March, I have listened to the podcast whenever I've had free time. I've been working on that PhD, uh, cooking, sewing, on my daily run, the infrequent times I've been in the car. My family made sure that I did not miss a lot in history. I grew up in the historic town of Hannibal, Missouri, and my grandmother was a Mark Twain historian. But your podcast fills the gaps that I missed, and honestly, I don't know what I would have done without you guys in the last four months. Uh, this is so sweet, Libby. Thank you so much. It is always a great honor for us to help people through any sort of difficulty um, and to be their companions when they need a little something to fill that that void. Uh, so thank you, thank you so much. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And you can subscribe to the show on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.